0: Hi there, and welcome to Live from the Cyber Institute. In this podcast, we listen in on conversations taking place among ministers, church leaders, and scholars as we engage the issues facing Christians and church leaders today. We hope that this episode is thought-provoking and a blessing to you, because as with everything we do in the Cyber Institute, our mission is to equip church leaders and help churches thrive. After you listen, make sure to follow our podcast so that you get all the latest episodes from your podcast platform of choice. Let's get started. All right, well, welcome everyone to this episode of Live from the Cybert Institute. Uh, this is David Kneip, the Associate Director of the Cybert Institute, and I am sitting down today uh, with Wes Crawford. Uh, Wes is a professor of church history here at ACU and in the Graduate School of Theology. Uh, he also serves as the Associate Dean for the Graduate School of Theology, uh, and what's especially relevant for today is that he is also the director of our Center for Restoration Studies, uh, a, an arm on campus that was started many years ago by uh, Doug Foster, I believe, one of our former professors that that focuses on the history of the Stone-Campbell movement. Uh, Wes, welcome. I'm glad you're here today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You betcha. Well, I wanted to tell our audience you and I have already talked about this a little bit the reason that I wanted to sit down with you today uh, is that recently you gave a paper at the Stone Campbell journal conference in Tennessee on Carl Spain's famous uh, 1960s speech uh, that was at ACU lectureship now our summit uh, and it was about challenges of race relations uh, in the United States and how that played out at ACU um, so we're going to talk some today about Carl Spain who he was Uh, why that speech was a big deal, uh, what else was going on around race relations in the Churches of Christ at the time, um, and why it's something that we still need to be talking about today. Uh, And I'm glad you're here because uh, for a long time you have focused on American church history and Stone Campbell history, but with special interest uh, in the history of conversations about race in our movement. So again, welcome and glad you're here. Yeah, thanks. Um, so let's set the stage for uh, that big speech in 1960. If you don't mind, uh, tell us some about Carl Spain's background, kind of who he was, what he was involved in and what led up uh, to that big speech.
1: Sure. Carl Spain was one of those individuals that in mid 20th century was a player in many fields. He was a preacher. He was a professor at ACU and ACC at that time. Uh, but preached in a number of places, uh, small towns, Paducah, Handley, but then some larger towns, Irving and Lubbock and Houston. But he he was involved with campus ministry. But in the time in which he delivered the speech, he was a professor here teaching in the Bible department uh, at ACC at that time. And as was the custom that time, he was invited to deliver a speech, actually a keynote address at the 1960 ACC lectureship, which i think the fact that he was invited to give a keynote address indicates his place within the tradition at that time sure uh, this you know a lot of people were invited to teach and present lessons and classes but not many people were invited to do a keynote so he was he was a, an excellent speaker was well known uh, had been around for a while at that time and uh, so it was quite an invitation and really set the stage for a pretty important moment i, I don't know that it's it's possible to really overestimate the mm-hmm. impact of that one speech. If there was one moment, uh, maybe in the history of the lectureships, uh, certainly in his life or, or with race relations in churches of Christ, it, people would point to that moment. I mean, yeah. it
0: was, it was very important. Yeah. Now we just, uh, on campus, we just had a renovation of Moody Coliseum, but Moody was not built yet. Right. For right. a lot of us that are alive now, when we think of the big speeches at summit mm-hmm. or lectureship, we think of Moody, but Moody wasn't there yet. So was this in Sewell? Was it, where was he actually giving this speech?
1: Yeah, actually, you know, for years I had studied this speech. I knew who Carl Spain was. Uh, the subject of my dissertation deals with race relations and churches of Christ. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd gone through this ground for, for a long time before I realized I was looking at the in some of the archives of the Center for Restoration Studies. And there's a picture of Carl Spain delivering this speech. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this doesn't really look familiar. Uh, so I talked to Mac Ice, who is the, the head archivist there in the, the Brown Library at ACU, who knows just about everything there is to know right. about everything. Right. And he said, actually, he said, Carl Spain delivered that speech across the street at Hillcrest Church of Christ. Oh, okay. And that's where they had delivered the keynote on okay. that day. And so that's that's where he is and in my mind i'd always pictured him standing somewhere on the campus yeah. you know delivering this but it's actually across the
0: street okay so probably come from he's in a pulpit he's in a pulpit, uh but it's going to be a different different kind of sermon right okay all right so tell us the story some of the speech i mean so this is it's february 1960 right. uh we're still in the jim crow era um rosa parks has refused to give up her seat emmett till has been killed in Mississippi. Uh, Professor Eisenhower has signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957, mm-hmm. not though some of the later ones with which we're more familiar. Uh, but some things haven't happened yet, like the Freedom mm-hmm. Rides, the March on Washington, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, Bloody Sunday in Selma, the deaths of Malcolm X and Dr. King. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of in the middle. I don't know if we'd call it a tipping point. Mm-hmm. It may have been kind of a tipping point for us, but sure. um, we're not into some of the more famous things that have mm-hmm. happened. So what did Spain say that day? And why do you think he decided this was the time to give that lecture?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of things at play here, and there's a lot of context. On the one hand, you have, as you mentioned, some of the civil rights movement is really heating up Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, People debate when did the civil rights movement begin. Um, Some people say, you know, 1954, 1955, you have the Brown versus Board of Education decision from the Supreme Court. You also have the... Montgomery bus boycott, which is really what put Martin Luther King Jr. on the map. Mm-hmm. And so these things have happened. Emmett Till, uh, national attention, uh, the death of this young boy goes down to the South, uh, having lived in Chicago, was visiting relatives and was was lynched and killed. Mm-hmm. A tragic story. So all of that's happened. That's in the, the public's mind. But within Churches of Christ, it had been almost just completely quiet. Uh, The publications within Churches of Christ had not mentioned it. Uh, It had not been mentioned in the lectureships. Uh, Preachers were not talking about it. It was just off the radar. I've told people before, if your only window into American culture at that time, the 1950s and 60s, had been the journals or the lectureships associated with the Churches of Christ, uh, you wouldn't know that anything was taking place. They They just didn't mention it. Okay. And so, on the one hand, it's important to remember he, his was the first voice in this from from the white churches of Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, there were other people, Aaron Hogan, for example, uh, very important black preacher in churches of Christ, had been talking about this for some time, and some others had before. G. P. Bowser, for example, mm-hmm. before that, uh, but he was the first prominent white preacher. That said anything about this out loud. So that that's some of the context. Okay. But there's also more context. You have to remember 1960. Mm-hmm. Okay. As you mentioned, th- this is 15 years uh, past the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. So you have the Cold War is happening. Uh, Nazis are still fresh in the minds of people, and so. All of that is a backdrop all mm-hmm. right nothing's been said so he ascends the stage that night and i just want to read a, a paragraph okay. from that speech and, and take all of those things in mind and imagine what it would have been like to sit in the audience to hear these words uh, in 1960 so and i'm quoting here he said what right have we to talk about the two faces of khrushchev when we guard the ballot boxes with guns and pass laws that deny native americans the right to vote on the basis of their color?" And social background. Like Khrushchev, many Americans just don't agree with Jesus about his moral code. The ethics of Jesus are foolish to many churchgoers. Mm. But when people insist on using the Bible to support an unchristian system of ethics, one can expect that social revolution will follow with its usual attending evils. God forbid that churches of Christ and schools operated by Christians shall be the last stronghold of refuge for socially sick people who have Nazi illusions about the master race. Political naturalism and the cloak of the Christian priesthood must not be the ethical code for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I feel certain that Jesus would say, ye hypocrite, you say you are the only one true Christians, and make up the only true church, and have the only Christian schools, yet, you drive one of your own preachers to denominational schools where he can get credit for his work and refuse to let him take Bible for credit in your own school because the color of his skin is dark. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he's drawing on all of those contexts. Yeah. He, I mean, cold war I and mean, he's talking about the Soviet Union. He's talking about Nazism. Um, he's criticizing this school on two fronts. He's speaking, as a representative of the school at the ACC lectureship, who is still segregated this at this right. time? Yeah,
0: because you mentioned Brown versus Board of Education, that did not apply to private schools, right?
1: right? And so, and really, the only reason some of these schools eventually made the turn to desegregation, some of them a decade mm-hmm. after Brown, was because the federal government was was threatening to take away funding for. Uh, grants right. uh, scholarships pell grants and everything else and so they uh, in many sense they they backed them into a corner and they, and then they finally relented but only after severe economic pressure from from the United States government and so there was a lot of resentment at that but but he's he's making this speech on the stage in a sense of of ACC at that time uh, but he's also an employee right of ACC right i mean he's a professor in the mm-hmm. Bible department which is really remarkable. Uh, I think it does speak to his incredible courage in this moment to say these things out loud. I mean you know if you think about American history, the the climate of the time in the 1960s and this you know JFK has been elected president I mean this is this is the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, this mm-hmm. is the time of the, the height of the Cold War and he is comparing, ACC, its administrators, and other Churches of Christ leaders with with communists and Nazis. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, that's, a you know, when I talk to some of them in Bible class or in church history, I often tell students, I wish I had a time machine mm-hmm. just to be able to go back and see, you know, Jesus' facial expressions when he says this or how did people react when that happened. And, yeah, yeah just to be able to watch people in the room. Uh, one of the things that impresses me when I read the speech is, the way he i mean unashamedly i think appeals to the pride mm-hmm. of folks in the room yes. in the excerpt you read you know it's we're gonna let one of our own guys go to a denominational school sure um if i remember right just after that he he says you know i think it was san angelo that you know, the schools in san angelo mm-hmm. are already integrated right. and we're not i mean just yeah. this almost kind of small town move of you're gonna let the guys up the street beat you in right. some ways right. But on this issue that is so, so challenging and so fraught mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. OK, so, I mean, what, the, the way I was always taught this era was that kind of what you said before, that for the most part, the white churches are basically silent. You know, mm-hmm. that Carl Spain kind of says something and is more or less kind of a kind of a lone voice would you say that that is is accurate, or is there more going on? I mean, especially once we get into the sixties, are the churches completely silent? Are there are there exceptions? Yeah, the, the right word here probably is virtually. Okay, <laughs> they were almost completely silent. Okay,
1: um, his speech really did more to open the floodgates than anything else. Okay, up to this point, there's there's nothing said. There's nothing in print. Uh, Christian Chronicle, the Gospel Advocate, mm-hmm. Firm Foundation—these leading journals at the time—they just didn't discuss it. It was okay. as if it, it wasn't happening. When he delivered this speech, a couple of things began to happen. Um, one is the Christian Chronicle opened up a, a an open forum in the pages mm-hmm. of the of their publication, inviting people to uh, submit their positions, and and there were wow. pros and cons, you okay. know. So they invited, and they were printed in the pages there. Uh, I haven't seen the exact numbers. I've, I've been told that after they printed that first publication, that the subscription numbers dropped mm-hmm. considerably, because a lot of people didn't didn't want to hear about that. Sure. And and it's the same kinds of things that we hear now, yeah. when people talk about race or racism. Uh, we have somehow bought into the idea that those are social issues, those are political issues. We shouldn't talk about those things at the church in the church, and and they were saying the same things then you right. And so they didn't want to talk about that and they criticized the editors and leaders of Christian Chronicle for bringing that into the kind of the church realm. Mm-hmm. But we, we, it's, it's the same script that yeah. we see now, yeah. but f- by and large it, it was quiet okay. uh, until the speech was delivered Christian Chronicle opens up their pages. And then throughout the sixties, there are just a handful of white leaders and churches of Christ that began to talk about this and are more vocal um, they're often pushed to the margins okay. uh, and whenever they open their mouth about this they are suddenly in some sense uh, their invitations are rescinded to right. speak at lectureships or invited to speak in meetings which is a big deal
0: yeah. at
1: that time and so uh, for example walter birch uh, was just a hero in this time was it was a marketing guy that, was, that preached, spent some time in uh, in Abilene, but spent some time in the North as well. Uh, John Allen Chalk uh, was a very important voice here, herald of Truth, uh, was pr- preached for a moment at Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, but is, is mostly known for his career as the, the primary speaker in herald of Truth. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very vocal in this, preached a series of lessons called Three American Revolutions, Uh, in the late 1960s that addressed some of these issues, Mm -hmm. one of these being race and just hit it head on. Uh, There there were a handful of other folks that were really actively involved, uh, but again, they were marginalized. And and once they did speak up about this, they were pushed even further to the margins. Uh, Walter Birch, and we have his personal papers here at ACU and some letters that he wrote. And he says that after he talked about this, he he It was like he was an outcast, mm. and he wasn't invited to do anything else. And so he his career in ministry really ended almost at that point. Wow. Uh, John Allen Chalk, uh, in the late 60s, uh, not long after he preached that series, Three American Revolutions, uh, quit ministry altogether, moved to Fort Worth, and has been an attorney, actually a very successful attorney, mm. in Fort Worth for a number of years, and I believe is still practicing okay. uh, there. But, you know, the, the voices were were few and far between. Yeah,
0: so something like you said, it, you know, it opened the floodgates. But it sounds like it opened them a little bit, a little bit it cracks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But clearly, there are there are more voices there right. uh, that maybe didn't say things or didn't say as much as they might have wanted to. Right. Okay. Well, so what happened for Spain? So I mean, he gives a speech, and you know, to my awareness, I mean, he continued to teach at ACU for a right. long time. Wasn't right. fired for many decades. Yeah. Right. So kind of what happened to him yeah. in the aftermath?
1: Yeah, so this is a fascinating piece of the story. I've talked to you about this a little bit, David, and this is in my research right now. I'm trying to get the answer to that question mm-hmm. in a better way. One of the amazing things to me, just looking as a, as a researcher in this topic, is that he delivers this speech in 1960. And then throughout the rest of the 60s, there are other individuals like like Walter Birch, john allen chalk uh, some others that are that are hosting race relations conferences Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a meeting in nashville there's a couple of meetings in atlanta Um, they're 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 attended by a lot of people a lot of white and black leaders in churches of christ uh at one of the atlanta meetings they actually um sign a document like a statement uh, like we agree to do these things and and it was it was pretty interesting because you had college presidents there you had journal editors you had some preachers white and black that were all there and many of them that were there signed this document that commits we're gonna we're gonna turn over a new leaf we're gonna make these commitments to to change things Mm -hmm. in, in churches of christ so that's happening there are a couple of major publications uh 20th century christian for example uh has a special edition that um, I think the editor at that time was Norval Young and Bill Banoski. They're working on this with Walter Birch and others, and they agreed to publish a series of essays that are are dedicated to this issue. Once again, they lost a lot of subscribers after they published it. But all that to say there are things happening throughout the rest of the 1960s. And I would think... And most of us would think that here's Carl Spain in 1960 delivers this very courageous address. You would think that he would be at the forefront of some of those other efforts. Mm-hmm. But the reality is he just disappears from the conversation. Hmm. Um, he's still around. He's yeah. still teaching at, at ACC. It's uh, taught for, for many, many years after that. But as far as I can tell, like in print, there's nothing else. Wow, Um, And we have we have all of his sermons or many of his sermons in the Center for Restoration Studies. We have these publications. He's writing about everything under the sun, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't tackle this subject anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting to me. Um, And and I have some (laughs) hypotheses about about what possibly is happening there, but no clear evidence yet. Um, He has a relative that I've been trying to talk to, and and I'm hoping that maybe he can shed some light onto this. Mm What I've been able to piece together is that, and this should, comes no surprise, he received an incredible amount of criticism mm. in the time. You know, here we are in the, you know, the 21st century and we look back at Carl Spain and we hold him up as a hero. Right. You know, there's a center. Yeah. And campus we named, we named after, after Carl him. Spain. Yeah. I mean, we, so we we really laud him and praise him for the things that he did, his courage, uh, much like we do, for example, with Martin Luther King. Sure. But in their time, Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King, you know, if we recall, he was assassinated. Yeah. Uh, In his time, uh, Carl Spain received a lot of criticism. Mm. Uh, I've been told from people that he even received death threats at his home and his family. And it was a difficult, difficult moment. There was a professor that worked here at ACU for many years that was a good friend of Carl Spain. And I've seen some of the things that have been published in an interview with him uh, Ed Enzer. And apparently they confided in one another. And mm-hmm. he, he tells part of that story, just how difficult it was for, for Carl Spain and his family yeah. to endure all of those things. So my hunch is uh, that he reached a point and, and decided I, I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, for the sake of myself, for the sake of my family sure uh, and just backed up uh, maybe in a sense, I've, I've done my thing. You know, I've offered my contribution, but now I'm going to let others take that mantle. It could have been that. Yeah. It could also have been, as as we talked about a little bit, uh, he worked at ACC.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there it's it's possible there may have been inst- institutional pressure. Yeah. You know, for him to, you know, you, you you said your piece. You know, at the lectureship. Now we'd prefer that right. you not say anything else. Right. And and I don't have anything to substantiate that. Sure. But that's a possibility. But, you know, as historians, that's what we do. We try to dig a little bit and try to find, really, what is the rest of that story? And right now, what we do know is he delivered the speech in 60, and then he's virtually silent Mm -hmm. for the rest of his life about this issue, which is very interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I I could imagine it might be even, you know, a combination of factors. You know, he might have had someone say at work, you know, it might be better if you didn't say anything more about this. Um, I've heard preachers say one of the reasons they like they prefer not to talk about politics from the pulpit is not so much kind of our heritage of mm-hmm. not really being involved, but because they recognize, especially in our day, how reactionary people can be and they want to be able to preach to everybody. Sure. Um, you know, I've got a friend who said, you know. I, I do vote now. I used to not vote, kind of went the David Lipscomb mm-hmm. route. I do vote now, but I'm not going to tell you who I vote for because I don't want you to put me in a box right. and say, I don't need to listen because you voted for this person or you're right. obviously this or that. You know, he's continuing to preach. I could mm-hmm. imagine maybe he thinks, I want to be able to be heard on other issues. Sure. Uh, and then combine that with the family stuff. Absolutely. I mean, it's got to be difficult.
1: Right. I mean, I spent... We didn't talk about this, but I spent 20 years as a preaching minister in Churches mm-hmm. of Christ, and I know some of that pressure. Yeah, I, I know what it's like to have part of your congregation be extremely critical. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you're trying uh, to bring a word of God. Yeah, which you know sometimes that's difficult to hear.
0: Yeah,
1: and and the reaction is sometimes very strong. Yeah, and so I can empathize with that a little bit about what it must have been like for him in that setting. I, I had a professor years ago. When I was at Emory as an Old Testament professor, been there forever. And he was speaking to a large group of, of potential you know, ministry students there one day. And he made a comment I'll never forget. We were talking about Old Testament prophets mm-hmm. and just the, the things that they said. Mm-hmm. And, and um, he made the comment. He said, nothing will turn a prophet into a preacher quicker than a mortgage payment. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> You know, it's one thing to stand on the sidelines and to say, well, why, you know, why didn't they do more? Why didn't yeah. they say, but when you're in the thick of it, um, not, you know, um, taking all the burden off of them or anything else, sure. or not giving them a pass, but it's real. That pressure's real.
0: Yeah. And um, when it's, there are it's, it's very difficult. they are realities. Yeah, reality. bills to pay, family yeah. to care for. Some of
1: them were economic at, at that time. And some of them may have been physical. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them it may be thinking about life or death. So, um, certainly laud him, uh, for, for what he did and, and left wondering, you know, what happened after the, yeah.
0: after the fact. Well, in just a second, I'm going to ask you about kind of why, why we still need to be thinking about this, mm-hmm. but make sure f- folks know. So he gives that speech February of 1960. And I think mm-hmm. it was the next year that mm-hmm. we admitted the first right. students of color to the graduate by graduate. Is that right.
1: Yeah. And then the next year to the undergraduate. Okay. And so it, it did, I mean, some would say, you know, it, it, One thing led to the other, and it's possible. Now, one of the interesting pieces of this story is that at that time, whenever you delivered a keynote address Mm -hmm. to uh, one of the lectureships, you're required to present an advanced copy of the speech. Okay. And so it's likely that at least a part of the speech had been read Mm -hmm. by administrators at ACC at that time. I think it was supposed to have gone to the, the administration and then even some, some members of the Bible faculty mm-hmm. maybe ministers of the, the College of Biblical Studies at that time. So they knew part at least of what he was going to say and they let him say it anyway. Mm-hmm. They didn't rescind the invitation. Now that's different. A few years later, a guy by the name of Roosevelt Wells, an African-American preacher in Churches of Christ was invited to give a, a speech at the lectureship at Harding University. Uh, much was the case like was here. They presented an advanced copy. Mm-hmm. His his speech was going to center on race. And they rescinded his invitation wow. and said, you know, your your speech doesn't fit the assigned topic. Mm-hmm. You know, and they just they didn't want him to, to say anything like that in Cersei. But here they let him deliver the speech. Yeah. And so we're left wondering, you know, what was at play there? It could be that ACC at that time was was moving in that direction. Yeah. And they wanted to test the waters. You know, let's mm. let's see what happens when he delivers this speech. And, yeah. Um, maybe it's too strong to say sacrificial lamb, but, <laughs> but let's just see what happens. Let's see what the reaction yeah. is. But I don't think it's a it's a coincidence that the
0: next year they begin mm. the process of desegregation at ACC. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are more than sixty years after the fact um, here. Um, what do you feel like is kind of the enduring significance of Spain's speech and the reaction it got, or uh, maybe another way to ask this would be you know, there are folks now who would say race that was an issue of the 20th century, we've moved past that. Uh, the best way to think about things is just to be colorblind. We want to take people um, just as human beings and not focus on skin color. Um, Why do you think we still need to talk about Carl Spain in this speech that he gave?
1: Yeah, what's interesting is as I study this issue over over many years and looking back at many different decades throughout time is that we, we tend to respond in exactly the same ways. Uh, we offer the same excuses, uh, even from the days of slavery, you know, in the days of slavery, uh, there are Christians in churches were saying, we don't need to talk about that. It's a political issue. It's a social issue. Let the government deal with it. Mm-hmm. It'll work itself out. Uh, we may not agree with slavery, some would say, but, but it's just not in not the purview of the church. Let's yeah. not talk about that. You fast forward a century later, the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. uh, the same same thing was happening. Uh, here we are living in the Jim Crow South where everything segregated, an incredible amount of inequality that we could spend a lot of time talking about. But again, you had Christians in churches, ministers, and people in the pews that were saying, Uh, we may not agree with segregation. Some did, but even those that were maybe moderate, Mm -hmm. uh, we may not agree with this, but it's, it's really not the responsibility of the church to be involved in this. It's It's a a social issue. It's a worldly matter. It's political. Let the politicians deal with it. Um, And then here we are again. Mm -hmm. So we're living in a time where I I don't think it's the case that suddenly racism is here again. I think it's always been here as I've described it to some people. It's It's always within the history of America, it's simmering uh, just beneath the surface. And if you think of like a volcano, every now and then it it, it erupts in full public view and we see it more easily. Um, And and so I think we're in one of those moments, uh, certainly, with all the things that have happened in in the recent years. Uh, it's it's in the news again it's, and people are talking about it I, I know it's 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 a big issue in churches i know ministers that struggle with how to talk about this from the pulpit and the pressure they receive from the congregation from elders from, i mean it's it's a it's a big deal right, right now and i think some of the same things are being said you know yeah. we don't need to talk about that it's a social issue it's a political issue mm-hmm. uh, but here's here dave this is one of my my pet peeves i I think we have to be careful about just turning over every important conversation to politicians. Like yeah. if if we believe that God is sovereign mm-hmm. and we use that language, yeah. we say God's sovereign over, over the world. Mm-hmm. God's the creator. God's in charge of all, all these things. If we really believe that, why do we just hand off some of these important conversations to other people as if it's not the responsibility of faithful Christian people to engage these topics. I, I think one of the, looking back, I think one of the real important pieces of Martin Luther King Jr.'s career, and maybe the reason he's known now, and the reason he had success in that time or made a difference where others had not, is that he did more than anybody else, he reframed the conversation of segregation. Uh, Up until that time, uh, white and black leaders uh, who were talking about segregation, Jim Crow, all all those things, they treated it as a social issue. Mm -hmm. And it was described as a social issue, as a political issue. But Martin Luther King, uh, largely as a result of teaching he had from people like howard thurman and benjamin mays who were both very important teachers for him he reframed that discussion saying that no segregation is a moral issue mm-hmm. and he tied it to theology yeah. and you know that god created all of us in god's image and th- there none of us are inferior or superior and his contention was god cares about this and in fact he went further to say that that racism and segregation at that time is sinful Mm-hmm. And so once you make that move, if, if you're saying that racism is a sin, yeah. well, then you can't just say, you, can, you can't adopt the posture of gradualism. Yeah. You can't just say it'll work itself out. I mean, we wouldn't do that with anything else.
0: And you can't use the word just. Right. It's just a social issue. That's it's right. It's just a political That's matter. Right. You Mm -hmm. know, we
1: don't tell somebody that's engaged in adultery. Well, you know, it'll work itself out. Let's just let's just let that play out and it'll be okay. No, we engage it Mm -hmm. because it's sin. It's against God's will. And that was King's argument. You Mm -hmm. know, if this is sin. We need to address it. And I would say the same thing. That's why I think this conversation is relevant now. And I think that's what Spain did. Mm -hmm. You know, he casts this as a moral issue. Yeah. The church has to deal with this. Mm -hmm. The fact in his mind that here they were you know, half a decade removed from Brown versus the board of education, where the Supreme court mandates that schools desegregate and here, all these Christian schools are, yeah. as he would say, so-called Christian schools that are refusing to comply with that order, uh, was just in his mind, if sinful. Yeah. And yeah. So, so I think yeah. it's still relevant today. that. I, mean,
0: I think and there's so many, so many issues that we can talk about now that it, it is a little more of a stretch to kind of tie it back to the gospel. Sure. You know, thinking about guns and abortion. I mean, you know, these are things that are not really addressed in Scripture. And, you know, we can make those connections, but it takes a little more work. But I mean, we see racism happening in the New Testament. And so when Paul says there's no more Jew or Greek, slavery free, male and female, I'm working right now on a a paper on John 17 and Jesus's prayers that they may be one. Mm. And he doesn't just say that they'll get along, that they'll accept each other. It's as we are one. And I mean, we believe Christian theology about the Trinity is that the father and the son and the spirit, there's this, there's this shared, there's commonality. There's, there's not subordination. Mm -hmm. If we're going to be one like they're one that excludes racism. That's right. But you're right to kind of shift it into a more moral theological key really changes the conversation.
1: I think the extent to which Christians see people being oppressed uh, where we see one group uh, being put above the other, mm-hmm. I, I think we need to engage those situations. Um, yeah, I mean, some would say, "Well, you know, there's no slavery now. There's no, you know, Jim Crow laws now. Well, certainly not." But we'd be hard pressed to say that there's not still oppression mm-hmm. in the world. Um, and I think where we see those things, uh, we need to be on the front lines and making sure everybody's voice is heard, making sure everybody has a seat at the table equally. And and, um, those are moral issues.
0: Yeah, I think so. Okay, so let's say that our audiences, they're convicted, they're ready to do something, Mm -hmm. but maybe they're not sure what to do. Could you give us an action item? Is there a book that we need to read? Is there a movie we need to watch? What do you think is kind of a next right step uh, that some of our folks can take?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the most important thing I would say, and this sounds so simplistic, but it's so important, is we need to be forming relationships uh, with people that don't look like us mm-hmm. and are not from the same social background that we are. Uh, when I lived in Tyler, uh, we lived there from 2011 to 2019. Um, some of these pivotal years that we're talking about, so much of this was in the news all of the time. Sure. Uh, and I remember having this Moment where I thought I, I just I need to do something. What what can I do? And then, and so I located a an African American minister across town. And I just said, Hey, can we have lunch together? So we did, um, and we formed a really good friendship. Uh, we just committed to to spend time together and get to know each other really really well. And then after a while, we decided let's let's broaden this a little bit. So we established this group called um, from Walls to Bridges. And we had a group of African-American, a group of white ministers, and we met every month mm-hmm. uh, at a different place just in, in order to build a relationship, mm-hmm. to get to know each other. And we had a couple of times where we did some uh, service projects together. Mm-hmm. We worked on yards and, and people's houses on Saturdays, just some things we we're serving together, some things where we got to know each other, which is really important. And, and I think it, it really... It really helped us minister better, I think, because I was hearing uh, from some of my uh, African American brothers, some things were happening in their congregations uh, that were very difficult in that time. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to get into the weeds here, but, you know, things were happening with police brutality or things were happening with the election. And and there was there was legitimate fear. I mean, fear in these congregations among our Christian brothers and sisters not knowing how to react. And so I'm, I'm getting to know these ministers, and they're are talking, and they're they're telling me these things about things are happening in their congregation, about meetings and counseling sessions are happening with their parishioners, and uh, it was it was heartbreaking. Yeah. But that gave me a different perspective, and and I think it shaped the way that I preached. I think it shaped the things that I said in the pulpit, just to to recognize that there are people in our community right now that are that are scared, that are, that are frightened for their lives, that are, they don't know where all this is going to lead.
0: Yeah. And these
1: are our Christian brothers and sisters. But I think that only happens when we form relationship with people. And so that's the most important thing I would say is mm-hmm. it sounds so simple, but really uh, form relationships with people that, that don't look like you. Yeah. And, and I think that'll broaden your perspective quite a bit.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I appreciate the way you're kind of connecting forming relationships within being able to hear right. just that, that pain, that fear, whatever's going on, because it was going on in Tyler before you were aware. Of Absolutely. And it's happening in our communities. But the only way you're going to hear about it is through those kind of relationships.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I think it's important to say, uh, Sal, so I'm a white male. I'm not apologizing for being a white male. Sure. That's who I am. Um, as a white male, there are some things I don't see. Yeah. I just don't. Um, and so I think some of these relationships that I've had with, with folks make help me realize that there are things happening around me that I'm not aware of. Mm-hmm. And, and just as as a white male, as someone that lives in this time, I. In some sense, I, I can go through life and I can look the other way and I cannot be touched or impacted by a lot of these things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that's possible. But as a Christian person as a follower of Jesus, I can't do that uh, because I recognize there are people walking in a parallel track. that are having a very different experience uh, through no fault of their own. Yeah. And I I just feel an urgency to do something about that.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's great. Well, Wes, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me. I really appreciate this. I think, um, our people are going to appreciate, uh, kind of both halves of, of this podcast and, um, uh, this conversation obviously that needs to continue. Um, let me ask as we're closing up here: um, if people want to reach out to you and connect, what would be the best way to do that? Are you on social media? Do you have a, a sub stack? Is just email? What would you say? Yeah. yeah, I mean, probably the easiest way is just email.
1: Okay, uh, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Like I said, I, I teach it at ACU. Uh, okay, the, the easiest email address we have is just wes.crawford at acu.edu. I'm happy to answer questions or engage in, in discussion. Uh, I, I'd love to to be in dialogue with
0: folks. Okay, very good. Well, folks, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and as always, you can find all of our uh, podcast episodes at cyberinstitute.podbean.com. Uh, I say it off the top of my head. I can't remember if it's .com or .org. I think it's .com, uh, but you can Google and you can find us there. Uh, thanks again, Wes, and to our audience. Thanks for being with us.
1: Great, yeah, thanks,
0: David. Thanks for listening today to Live from the Cyber Institute. We would love to connect with you on our social media channels, and you can always find all of our various resources at our website, cyberinstitute.org. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on your platform of choice, then share it with your friends. Until next time, may God bless you in all that you do.